And now, The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, live on 92.7 and 106 FM. Streaming on the Prime Media Plus app and on DSTV channel 856. Welcome to The Money Show. APSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the show this Thursday night. No big surprises on interest rates, and that's because inflation is still too high uh, for the appetites of the Reserve Bank's uh, Monetary Policy Committee, which met for the last three days and decided to do nothing. Sometimes the best action is to do nothing, and that action today means that interest rates stay at the same level they've been for the last six MPC meetings, if memory serves. Uh, But it means that interest rates will remain unchanged and are unlikely to be changed, certainly in the first half of the year. Despite increasing signals that inflation is coming under control in different parts of the world at different rates, uh, at this stage, certainly there is little appetite within the Reserve Bank to do so. Also coming up this evening, we've got Narina Fisser in our investment school and a really critical thing to understand is the dividend story how you make money um, by your out of your investments so that tonight is absolutely pivotal listening here on the money show you can give us a call on 011-8830702 you can contact us via social media at bruce business or on whatsapp 0727021702 welcome to the thursday evening edition of the money show the Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. As is the case with these things, it's not what they say, it's how they say it. So how did the Reserve Bank Governor present the inflation outlook today? Because that's more important, effectively, than the news announcement, which was, we're not cutting interest rates. Kevin Lings is Chief Economist at Stan Lib. What was his mood like? What was his tone like today? Because I think that sends us more important signals than the words themselves. Kevin, good evening. Evening, Bruce. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think there was anything in terms of a surprise in the content of, of the speech. Uh, or in the decision itself. Obviously, the Reserve Bank is still flagging, though, the upside risks to inflation. So, as you said in the introduction, from their perspective, inflation just hasn't done enough. It has come down meaningfully. It's not as if there's been no progress, and you would argue that interest rates are helping to get inflation under control. But clearly, when they look at um, inflation expectations, which is important from their perspective, uh, that's still too high when they look at some of the risks around things like food inflation. Obviously, they are looking also at the disruption to shipping that's going through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, that that could add to some global upward pressure on prices due to supply disruptions. So they're just not comfortable enough yet. And if I look at their forecast, They've only got um, inflation down at the midpoint of the target by the end of this year. So you would say, yes, there's still a a possibility of an interest rate cut in the second half of this year. But in the short term, it does feel like they want to keep interest rates on hold. Most certainly does. Despite the fact that inflation in many parts of the world is far more tempered than it was this time last year, that end of year, early new year sort of uptick in inflation in some parts of the world, um, I think has spooked central bank governors everywhere. I think that's fair. If I look at, uh, say, for example, the United States inflation data, the most recent number 
did surprise a little bit on the upside. We have seen a little bit more pressure coming through from the oil price. I don't think anything really dramatic. I think it's more that there's a concern that inflation is still overall too high relative to targets and that there's more work to be done. And as a central bank, what you don't want to do is having come this far and getting inflation under control to cut rates early and then find that, no, you've cut them too early. Now you've got to reinstate the interest rate hikes. That would be that would be terrible. So you want to err on being cautious. Uh, and, and clearly part of it is also that the major, the biggest economy in the world is not yet ready to cut rates. And obviously, if South Africa cuts rates early and we narrow the gap with the United States, then we do run the risk of adding to some of our currency pressure. And that's the last thing we want at the moment. So I think the Reserve Bank is being cautious together with many other major central banks. And the, the governor making it very clear that the issues of Transnet and ESCOM are central to South Africa's inflation problem. If you can't have, if you don't have access to cheap energy or if you have to supplement your energy supply by investing heavily in it, that's a massive cost. Um, if you can't get your goods around the country and have to make another plan, in other words, move your stuff around on trucks and damage the roads and cause congestion and all of those sorts of things, those are massive constraints. Not only are they constraints to growth, but they're also drivers of inflation. And he could push interest rates up to 25%. And those factors still wouldn't change. So the question that so many people have got, uh, Kevin, is, you know, if we cut interest rates now, we cut them in six months' time, would it really make a difference to the inflation outlook? Because inflation is being driven by things that have got absolutely nothing to do with your and my spending patterns at, uh, at the shops. Yeah, I suppose, because, yes, there is merit in that in that statement, Bruce. But I think from the Reserve Bank's point of view, there's a couple of arguments. Obviously, the one is if you did nothing right from the beginning and you simply said most of the inflationary pressure is externally driven, whether it's the oil price or whether it's got to do with electricity prices and we do nothing with interest rates, what would the inflation rate be at the moment? And I've got no doubt it would be higher than where it is right now. Um, so I, I agree that interest rates are not massively effective in getting inflation under control. They definitely help. Yes, they do inflict pain on the economy. That's the nature of higher interest rates. But if you do nothing, then there is a tendency for inflation to feed on itself. And an inflation rate that is starting to rise is very, very seldom stable. In other words, it just continues to rise. And before you know it, you've got double-digit inflation that's becoming trench. So I think the Reserve Bank had, had no option. If they cut rates now, would the inflation rate be different? The risk, I think, a bit is that you could um, come under a bit of pressure in terms of currency and and the perception around global capital flows that may undermine uh, the currency a little bit. And then I think you run the risk that you you feed inflation expectations. In other words, let's say that you, you see interest rate cuts and you say to yourself, well, it doesn't look like the Reserve Bank is all that worried with inflation being up at 5%. They're not really serious about getting inflation to 4.5%. And so the expectation is built that inflation at five to six percent is fine, and five to six percent is way too close to the top end of the target. And before you know it, yeah. you're outside the target again. So 
The Reserve Bank has made it clear 4.5% is really the target. They want to get it down there. They want expectations down there. And so they've got to be seen to be um, serious about getting inflation under control. So I think they're doing what they can. I think the governor is right in flagging these um, external factors and these domestic factors that they definitely undermining productivity in South Africa. They definitely adding to the cost base. They definitely adding to a, a lack of competitiveness. They weakening the economy. There are lots of ills as a result of of our problems with infrastructure. And it also it also speaks, Bruce, to this idea that the Reserve Bank should cut interest rates in order to get the economy going. Interest rates are not the key impediment to economic growth in South Africa. That's much more to do with some of the big structural um, headwinds that South Africa faces around electricity and other infrastructure. And that really that's where the heavy lifting has to be done. And that the Reserve Bank's impact, I think, is really at the margin. So I'm not critical of their policy approach. I think it's appropriate. And I think right now we are looking at that we're focusing on the timing of when they could consider starting the interest rate cutting cycle. Which is when, do you think? I would say in the middle of the year is entirely feasible. I think by then uh, inflation will be a bit lower than where it is now. I think it will be in sight of the midpoint of the target. They should be more comfortable that that is where inflation is heading. It will also give them a better idea of what's happening to to uh, the, big, the big global interest rate decisions, particularly the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve. So by the middle of the year, I think that will be a bit clearer. And then uh, hopefully by then, uh, we've also got some some easing of the, the political events within the Middle East and maybe less disruption in the Red Sea. And, and hopefully that gives them also a bit more confidence. So I think we are set up for interest rate reductions during the course of the year. And, and I think that once they start, because they acknowledge that interest rates are currently restrictive, they are above the neutral level, they are by the Reserve Bank's own admission hurting the economy, they could take interest rates down one to one and a half percent and and uh, give, the, give the consumer and business sector some relief into 2025. And I think that would be welcome it's certainly not going to boost the economy enormously, but at the margin, it would ease some of the pain we're feeling. Kevin Nings, comprehensive. Thank you very much indeed. Kevin Nings, Chief Economist at StanLib. Listening to that, Yaku van Jarsveld, who's the Head of Commercial Strategy at Experian Africa. Now, I was looking at some commentary today from Maya Fisher-French, who runs the very successful Maya on Money website, and she's getting a growing number of emails from people saying, I'm really struggling to hold on to my home. And this is where it really matters here, Yaku, where the cost of servicing debt is elevated for such a long period of time that people have run out of any sort of elasticity in household budgets as prices generally have continued to increase. How are you seeing the household debt picture playing out? It's a very valid point that Maya raises there. And I think um, after listening to your conversation with Kevin, it's it's important that we put context into the, the, the type of person or the segment of the market that's exposed to this interest rate pressure that you just discussed a second ago. If you think about the, the, the total value of outstanding credit in the South African market today is roughly 2.16 trillion rand, of which 1.6 trillion are secured lending products, and a trillion of that is home loans. That debt is owned or, or the, the only 12% of South African credit active consumers 
have access to that type of debt. So yeah. 80% of unsecured lending uh, debt sits in the hands of 12% of the credit active population. And those are the people that effectively are most impacted or are the ones impacted by interest rates. So interest rates, as severe as they are, is small portion of the market is impacted by interest rates. More of them are more of the population impacted by inflation. But that said, when we look at the trend at which we, our consumer default index had experienced deteriorated over time, we've seen it deteriorate significantly in the last 18 months. And in effect, it's a true measure of consumer distress when we measure through our, our default index. Uh, and it is looking at people that defaulted beyond three months delinquent for the first time ever. And we've seen a significant increase over the last 18 months. In fact, year on year, 70% increase in the most affluent segment of the market. And that is purely because of interest rates and secured lending exposure. And what we see now is a similar trend occurring that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the interest rates were around 21, 22%. Um, and the first reaction there was from banks repossessed properties, let's go into the repo market, and ultimately banks just became the biggest holders of property yeah. which couldn't put people in ever. What banks are doing now is they're unlikely to take back those properties because they learn from them. Yeah. So people struggling to hold onto their properties, absolutely, because of the cost pressures. But their advice would always be to consumers, go and speak to the banks. They won't make the mistakes they made in the early 2000s. And, and, and they're not gonna take back because you just become a property owner. Um, so, so it's very different, even though the trends look the same, banks will react very differently to supporting consumers that, that, that's finding it difficult these days. Yeah, I think you're right. Thank you, Jakub van Jasvold, the Head of Commercial Strategy at Experian Africa. Rather own up to the problem before the problem exposes you for having a problem, if you know what I mean. And so often, I mean, I talk to people in the banking sector and they know who's headed for trouble. They really do. And that's why the calls start coming in. And that's why you start getting calls saying, would you like a little bit of help? Would you like some counselling? Would you like a little bit of this? Um, and, and rather come to terms with the issues that you may face in your life and your personal finance is quicker than sooner rather than later. If you leave it too late, that's when the real trouble happens uh, for consumers. That's when assets are taken. That's when things go badly wrong. Well, and in addition to the interest rate announcement, the uh, basically the no news news that, you know, everything is fine, Lissita Khanyakho announcing the appointment of a new member of the Monetary Policy Committee. And this is De- Dr. David Folks, And he is uh, was appointed as an advisor to the governors. He's a technocrat. He understands... Um, the, the, the the real technicalities of inflation and the impact of monetary policy. He's been in the Reserve Bank in since 2013 and he worked in the Financial Markets Department of the Reserve Bank, so he's very much an insider. And between 2013 and 2021, he worked in the Economic Research Department. And these guys have got the some of the best research in South Africa, certainly in terms of the raw data that they have access to. And they are instrumental in sort of shaping thinking around the way monetary policy should work within the Reserve Bank. So he's a massively experienced individual, and his voice will be a welcome addition, I'm sure, to the Monetary Policy Committee. The Monetary Policy Committee only meets for three days out of every two months. Uh, and so it's not a particularly onerous task. It's still have a day job to get on to, onto. Um, I look here and I see he's got a master's degree from Vitz, a doctorate. A doctorate? Hmm. From John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies as a Fulbright Scholar. 
And I do happen to know that the Reserve Bank has been incredibly fastidious in its vetting of people with PhDs at the moment. So I think we can rest assured that Dr. Folks has his PhD and is appointed to the Monetary Policy Committee of the South African Reserve Bank, taking the number of people on that committee to five from its present four since Kuben Naidu resigned last month. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to Graham Kerner. Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective this evening, our market commentator on what was a, a, a breather day for the JSE after two very big days of gains on the hopes of China's stimulus. Somebody was saying to me today, Graham, uh, that the US has experienced immaculate disinflation. Now, I'd, I've not heard the term immaculate disinflation. I've heard immaculate conception. I've heard of immaculate yeah, people's immaculate front rooms, but I've not heard of immaculate disinflation. Have you got any idea what that might mean? Yeah, Bruce, it's another one of those uh, beautiful concepts that we've been all exposed to recently, and it's really it's uh, an extenuation of the the perfect storm. You know, the Goldilocks uh, soft landing, I suppose you could call it. It's when you find inflation falling, but not. Um, in a in an environment where monetary policy, for example, has triggered a recession, so it's inflation coming down very in a very orderly behaved manner without the reserve bank of the nation breaking the economy. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Another one to add to our to our vocabulary. Beautiful, isn't to, it? To our lexicon of complex terms. There we go. And even lexicon shouldn't be in that in that in that language. Um, and that's another term for soft landing. People have been talking about the possibility of a soft landing and have been poo-pooing the idea of a soft landing in the United States. But it looks like they may just very well achieve that. Yeah, Bruce, when we spoke uh, two weeks ago, I was saying, you know, maybe we're all a little ahead of ourselves. Um, but I think that is the, the narrative, at least until it gets disproven. Um, our sense is the market is expecting rate, rate cuts in the U.S. and possibly even in Europe before we think they're likely to happen. And uh, if you look at the dot plot then, which is really the, the Fed governor forecasts of where rates are likely to be, we think that the market might also be a little bit too optimistic on the on the pace of those cuts. So, um, yeah, but at least for now, I think for the next few months, we've got this uh, Goldilocks environment where inflation is coming down and the Fed is thought to do the right thing and to cut interest rates uh, fairly soon in the new year. But as I say, we'll see what that looks like. But at least for the next while, it looks as though the market's got the bit between its teeth and it, that's the that's the story it's running with. Because we're seeing record closes almost day after day on the S&P 500. Not every day, but you know, quite a few uh, uh, record closes as markets anticipate this, this environment of the soft landing, the Goldilocks economy, the, the idea that we're not going to see an all-fall-down scenario that has been feared for the last two years. Yeah, Bruce, I think, you know, a lot of people are talking quite rightly about the, you know, the Magnificent Seven, so really... You know, if you look at the S&P, um, you know, Microsoft and Apple and a couple of others that, that I wouldn't say the seven of them single-handedly, but pretty much the seven of them account for a massive portion of the S&P 500 performance. So if I may, numbers never do well on TV, but on radio, but if you, if you say NASDAQ up almost 50% on a, on a one-year view, the Russell 2000, which is the broader economy stocks, 
is only up four. That's, that sp- uh, speaks volumes. And then the S&P 521. So, Bruce, it's really the S&P, the NASDAQ are being powered by a handful of companies. And in large part, the rest of the market uh, has been left behind. And I think that's what has got people like myself a little bit anxious. It's not about what the economy does. It's about the fact that you know, quite a few of the Magnificent Seven are trading on very demanding ratings in part on the promise of AI and all that that will unleash. But, um, you know, not all of those companies are going to benefit equally or as ex- you know, as much as the market might be anticipating. So our sense is that the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ is a little bit ahead of itself, um, and we mustn't uh, assume that it's just going to carry on hitting new highs every day in spite of the sort of immaculate disinflation Goldilocks scenario that we're seeing in the U.S., Graham Kerner with a Kerner perspective this evening. Thank you, Graham, very much uh, for your wrap-up this evening. Graham Kerner on a Thursday evening. Um, after Eyewitness News at half past six, we are going to be looking at the China story. Why is it that China's markets are not performing to the extent that we believe they should, considering the sort of returns that you see from the high-flying companies in China, particularly Nasdaq and Tencent, with which we are intimately connected via uh, I said Naspers. We're intimately connected to Tencent via Naspers. Um, and we kind of think, well, really? What about this? Um, and, oh, by the way, a couple of you wanted to know what's happening to Shezi and to Livestock Wealth. Livestock Wealth was fingered yesterday by the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. Uh, Financial Sector Conduct Authority came out yesterday and said, be careful dealing with Livestock Wealth uh, because they're not registered with the FSCA. And a number of you have come back to me today saying, well, they don't have to be. They do this and they do this and they do this. Well, the FSCA is concerned about the the lack of box ticking that, uh, that, that the guys at Livestock Wealth have done. And they've issued that statement. They're not withdrawing that statement. And Shezzy, the man who runs uh, Livestock Wealth, did promise us yesterday that there'd be a statement this morning and that there'd be a response on air tonight. They've not released a statement. Now they're saying they want to wait for the financial Sector Conduct Authority to conclude their investigation and then they'll chat to us. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's a reasonable response, but it's not going to uh, yeah, boost confidence, unfortunately. As soon as the regulator starts sniffing around your herd, um, it is it does become a little bit concerning. So you know, one hopes for the best on these things, but we watch and wait. No news, further news at least, coming out of livestock wealth. It's half past six, time for the latest in Eyewitness News. Juliet Newell is standing by at the Eyewitness News desk. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. This is The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield, but you get told that all the time anyway, so why do I repeat it? Why do I repeat it? Why do I repeat it? Capitec back at 2050 rand, not quite at record levels, but there or thereabouts. And pricing in again, slightly better views on the South African economy. But what about China? China promising stimulus. China, which has come very unstuck with its long-awaited property crisis, which is beginning to manifest and hold. And Chinese government intervention to slow down some of the excesses and vagaries of a technology sector and to limit kids' um, screen time and all sorts of important things that they've done after 30 years of persistent growth. But I saw a really interesting statistic the other day saying if you bought a Chinese market index 30 years ago, priced in, in real time up until today, you would have made no money. 
because there are some very significant company outliers within China in the same way as there are outliers in South Africa, in the same way as there are outliers in the United States and in the UK and other economies. But the overall index has gone absolutely nowhere, which I was surprised by Dwayne Cable, the head of quality at 91 because you've got the booming chinese economy on average five six percent growth for most of the last two two maybe even three decades and yet the overall market has not responded with the same level as enthusiasm as growth suggests it should have evening bruce i mean i think what's clear i mean those stats are spot on and really the pain has been inflicted in those indices over the last three years where China has been one of the worst performing markets for each of the last three years and really suffered as a result of the hard lockdown with COVID. And and since then, really the recovery has been exceptionally disappointing where economic growth has been disappointing and sentiment is low. And certainly in an age of geopolitics, um, foreigners have fled from China. And so certainly at the index level, uh, China has not been uh, the place to have invested over the last few years. Okay. So let's not look back. Let's look forward. It becomes a stock picker's market, I guess. And in the same way as if you'd invested only in the Magnificent Seven, you would be have had returns of 20, 30% a year for the last couple of years and not the more mundane sort of S&P returns uh, because they make up a huge chunk of the S&P. You've got to go into any country in the world really being very cautious as to what you invest in. Um, and, and that's the, I suppose that's the trick in investing, isn't it? No, absolutely. And I mean, if we look at the Chinese market now, there are some great companies that are screening quite cheap. And given the negative sentiment, and certainly for us as long-term investors, looking for those opportunities. So uh, in a recent trip to China, mainland China, uh, in December, when I spent two weeks traveling through China, seeing multiple companies, and certainly what was clear, there were some great companies that we met um, but ultimately, it's one where the sentiment is is quite low. So certainly, we think um, China is a market ripe for opportunities and potentially making some significant upside, but certainly not without risk. I saw a piece you posted, and it was quoting the late Charlie Munger. One of the final interviews he gave at the age of 99 and probably two-thirds just before he died, he was absolutely lucid and very clear in his thinking, maintaining that China will continue to be a, a, a significant growth engine for the global economy, at least for the next 30 yeah, so it was actually quite ironic. I mean, many people will know Charlie Munger's his relationship to Warren Buffett. Not many people know that he's actually been a long-term China bull. And certainly one for an astute investor, seeing those potential opportunities, and probably one of the key takeaways from spending two weeks in China meeting companies, some government officials, was certainly one where certainly the economy is struggling to get out of first year, And my key takeaway from that trip was that unless we see a significant amount of government intervention and stimulus, the locals, where the sentiment is quite low, is unlikely to start consuming. And we all know that uh, consumption is an important driver of economic growth. I think pleasingly what we have seen over the last few days, China starting to make rumblings around stimulus being more supportive of the economy, which, again, um, given our exposure to China in the portfolios, making investors a little bit more optimistic 
certainly the last few days. So how then do you position a portfolio for investors in China? Because they're just, you know, it's a vast, 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 complex country, foreign culture to us, um, a, a highly interventionist government, a government that is not, and very powerful government. When it intervenes, it intervenes and there is a consequence. It's not like the South African government, which, you know, we, 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 we deal with its potential in- interventions with some circumspection based on track record. How do you then look at it as a place to make money. For example, for a Nusbash, do we continue to keep the faith that Nusbash remains South Africa's best sort of international investment opportunity, for example? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we get quite encouraged. I mean, again, the one thing that you don't read in, in Western media is the fact that China has made significant progress. They've got world-class infrastructure. We met some of the best management teams um, around the globe over the two weeks we were there certainly significant innovation in a business like Tencent, which is a key asset for NASPAS, representing about 80% of their NAV. We spend a significant amount of time with Tencent management in Shenzhen. And certainly if you look at the outlook for that business, it's one where significant growth drivers, despite what is a tough macroeconomic environment. So when we think of the outlook for a business like Tencent, where earnings we think are going are gonna to grow and recover on the back of what we're seeing in advertising, fintech, um, certainly within their gaming platform, we get quite encouraged. And when we look at the share price, it's significantly derated and certainly one where the market has become quite skeptical and we're seeing significant upside. So within the portfolio context, while we acknowledge the upside, we are mindful of the risk. So we think certainly in our portfolios, having some exposure to the likes of Tencent NASPAFs and process, which we think offer significant upside, certainly on a risk adjusted basis and with in a portfolio context, we think offer very attractive returns for investors. Fabulous. It's good to hear the optimism. Dwayne Cable has been recently on a road trip to China, the head of quality at 91. Uh, the portfolio, he's a portfolio manager there. Thank you very much. Dwayne Cable this evening on The Money Show. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. We're in the silly season of the elections already, and we don't even have a date declared yet. And we've got the politicians who are politicking, and we've got the politickers who are politicianing, and we've got Jacob Zuma trying to get himself elected and creating political parties and be told unequivocally by the IEC today, terribly sorry, but you're a criminal and you've got a criminal record. You were sentenced to jail time. You served jail time. Um, and um, despite whatever you might think about other members of parliament, you are not entitled to pass go. You may not collect whatever moolah you think you can collect each time you go, go around the board. But certainly there is going to be a lot of noise and you wonder what the key themes are going to be. One of those key themes, I suspect, and we've seen the president suggest that it's a, it's a wonderful ANC bit of politicking. If you don't choose us, the other parties, especially the DA, will take away, they will take away your social grants and then you'll be in trouble. You can only trust the ANC to keep providing social grants. Kai Zitole watches this very closely. He's an independent political analyst. And I'm wondering how you see this politicking playing out this time around, Kaya, because it just it, the, the there's a lot to play for in these elections and there are going to be some fairly outrageous claims and some very, very outrageous promises made in the next couple of months. Yes, Bruce, good evening. Good evening to the listeners. It is obviously inevitable that within an electoral cycle we are going to hear a lot of these very bold statements 
that are said in either the heat of the moment, as some people might suspect, or in some instances strategically said in order to drive a, part- a particular viewpoint about a political party. And what we tend to see is that politicians who are pandering to an audience tend to say some rather outrageous things at the best of times. And of course, at that particular moment, no one takes a moment to vet that and say, wait, hold on, what you are saying doesn't make sense and therefore should not be said. And I think we've seen examples of it in recent days where Panyaza Lesufi at an ANC gathering essentially said that, you know, um, ESCOM death is going to be written off for the people that are in the room. And of course, everybody wants that death to be written off. So that can mm. tend to be quite exciting. Then you listen to the president saying something similar in relation to the social grants and the National Student Financial Aid Scheme. And of course, for a lot of people, unfortunately, these are some of the resources that really do become the difference between them and absolute poverty in most instances so anyone who even implies that they could be at risk is a type of people is the type of person that people are going to listen to and unfortunately it's not always backed by facts no of course not but poli- but politicians understand what people want to hear and they'll tell people what they want to hear and then people will be very cross with them two years down the line and they'll tell them the same thing again and they'll make the problem saying you know what we, we couldn't do it because of X, Y, and Z. And we're going to do it. We're still going to do it. And people then are suckered into voting time and time again. One wonders whether, because, I mean, you live in social media world. I live in social media world. And we think ourselves terribly clever, well-connected, and well-informed. But 99% of people who are making a cross on a piece of paper are not in that social media world. They're living in the, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the poverty traps of, of large parts of South Africa in the hope that things get better and they do listen to the best possible stories i suppose yes and i think that's one of the great limitations of the way in which information isn't even distributed amongst the electorate and amongst people who end up going to the vote so of course you and i may be in a position to synthesize what somebody says and say wait hold on these are the limitations what you're saying these are the practical realities underpinning that statement so therefore we believe you or we don't believe you but for most citizens when they simply hear a statement that sounds like it makes sense that sounds like wait actually it could be practical then they simply say well i think that these guys who promised this are the guys that are worth voting for and as you and i know that once people are in political office then they actually spend that entire term explaining their way through why they couldn't <laughs> do all of those things that they promised only with the hope that by the time the next electoral cycle starts people have either forgotten or maybe they find a craftier way of essentially drumming through the same message that is full of promises but has little capacity of ever being delivered. Yet as voters, we fall the same bulldust each and every single time. At what point? I mean, is this the wake-up election? Do you see it as a a moment of awakening, a moment of of real people making fundamentally different choices, head-over-heart choices as to who should be running the place over the next five years? I think over many electoral cycles that we've seen a lot of this rhetoric obviously not being followed by actions, you now have enough of a strong electorate that has what you may call, you know, uh, let's call it an electoral memory that says, wait, hold on, actually we've seen how this game works. We actually now want you to be able to explain in granular detail how all of these things are going to happen. So we are hoping that many more citizens are going to be able to tap onto the collective wisdom of what we've heard in the past, the collective wisdom of the reality 
reality that we live in and be able to say, well, actually, it is no longer sufficient for you to simply scream these things out in a rally. We actually need to be able to see the substance of what you're saying. And hopefully the manifestos become the starting point for people then saying, we've heard uh, the manifesto being shouted at a particular rally, but now we actually want to analyze it. We want you to be able to explain exactly how all of these things that you mentioned in this very ambitious document are going to be done. So we're hoping that this becomes the type of election where there's much more substantive engagement and much more interrogation of what we get told long before we get to the ballot box. I'm a bit concerned about dilution of opposition politics in favour of the incumbent ANC. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think, unfortunately, with so many political parties claiming to be an, an opposition, you are seeing a dilution and a diffusion of that. So it becomes now a matter of even those that say we definitely want to be able to seek an alternative very few people have the patience, very few people have the resources to be able to then go through the different manifestos, understand each of the different parties uh, sufficiently enough to be able to say, well, this is actually the alternative that addresses like all the concerns that I have. It is also very clear that you are never going to find a perfect manifesto that addresses every single element of what South African society needs to be addressed by whoever is in power. So it becomes a matter of, well, from those that have put together a case, is there one political political party that addresses or ticks some of the boxes that are most important to me and therefore that's the party that I should pursue. But I think that given the nature of issues that have to be tackled in South Africa, given the very polarized nature of how those issues have been addressed before and how those issues are understood, the opposition parties have got a lot of work to do and unfortunately the noise that has been created about uh, around how many of these alternative opposition parties are means that many more citizens will simply give up even the pursuit of actually understanding what these alternative yeah. parties are. And I see the ANC benefiting greatly from just that sense of paralysis where people say, I'm hearing too much noise. I actually do not hear one cohesive answer or how to actually find a new government or find uh, find a new political mm-hmm. party that addresses the issue that a voter may feel the ANC in particular hasn't sufficiently addressed over the past 30 years. Which is why the politicians, thank you, Kai Sitole, the independent political analyst, so it's why the politicians play on emotions rather than facts. They want you to feel something. And if you feel what they're telling you to feel, then your cross will appear next to their names. It's not particularly complicated. It's the way these things have worked since the dawn of democracy. That's why it gets loud. loud. That's why it gets noisy. That's why it's so hotly contested. And now, The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, live on 92.7 and 106 FM. Streaming on the Prime Media Plus app and on DSTV channel 856. EPSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JC Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. EPSA is a registered FSP. Well, Saudi Arabia's long had a beef <laughs> uh, a, a, a disagreement with uh, South Africa's meat producers and has banned production and was uh, banned the import from South Africa of meat products like beef and lamb. That is going to change, however. Wadile Setlobo, I think, is going to be excited about this. Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator tonight. Talk about driving your sales. How do you get your sales booming? absolutely critical if you you can have a business that looks wonderful on paper if you're not actually selling the service or the product that you create what are you doing 
So how do you scale your sales? Um, that is what we'll discuss this evening with Pavlo. Then at half past seven, it's all about dividends with Narina Fisser. Narina is a strategist and an advisor at ETF South Africa. That's what's on the agenda in the next hour here on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, Saudi Arabia going to end its 20-year ban on meat imports from South Africa. Its Food and Drug Administration has lifted the prohibition and that will resume then meat imports from August this year. Final approval to start shipments of halal cuts to the country are now in place, which is a piece of good news. Wandiles Lechobo is the author of A Country of Two Agricultures. He's an agricultural economist at the Agricultural Business chamber. Well, it's a big breakthrough, isn't it? I mean, why did the Saudis ban imports of our meat in the first place? Bruce, this is a big break. And you will recall that we've had our challenges in the past and even most recently with what we call the foot and mouth uh, disease. That was one of the always the challenges in South Africa. But I think, Bruce, you'll recall that in the early 2000s, we weren't really big as a country on a beef uh, export. It is really around about 2015 or so where we start playing a significant role on the beef exports in the world. And then I think now with these news coming in, they really bought in well with our ambition as the agricultural sector of saying, how can we expand to more markets beyond where we originally have presence in? Okay, so how big an opportunity is this? I mean, if we only really started massive beef exports from about 2015 onwards, it's a fairly small export market. Is this an opportunity to ramp up significantly the South African beef industry? It is a big market, Bruce, because in value terms, I mean, our beef exports are just over 300 million US dollars. So it is something that is growing. And what's exciting is that if you look at those figures from around about 2015 up until today, the numbers have been on an upward trajectory. It is really uh, around about 2022 where we begin to take a knock because, again, of the foot and mouth disease. But I think with the Saudi market, to your question, how big that market is, it is huge. It's around about 650 million US dollars just for beef. So within the, the countries that have had a lot of presence, with the likes of Brazil, Australia, the U.S., New Zealand, Canada, and I think South Africa with its high-quality beef now is also going to begin to participate and take a stake within that beef market of the Saudi. Uh, what is the situation with South Africa's foot-and-mouth problem? Because it does sort of emerge from time to time. We never quite get it right to eradicate it. It remains a big challenge, uh, a burst because of how things are set up. I mean, because this, there are zones in South Africa that are risky, somewhere in the north that are bordering the Kruger Park, and somewhere there by KZN that are, 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 are bordering some of the national parks in those areas. But I think over the years, we are learning about what are some of the methods at which we can manage this disease. Because even last year, where for the first time it was in about uh, six of our nine provinces. We still continue to see some of the exports. And I think today, as we speak, the industry is on a recovery mode, which is why, I mean, some of our colleagues I was speaking with earlier uh, from Matthew Karan at the current beef, which are part of these players that will be participating in this Saudi market. They're very happy about these news because their view was that the industry is on a recovery side. Feed prices are coming down. 
uh, grazing felt is recovering, and now with these markets opening up. So these are all the key ingredients of a better path for the South African beef industry. So the challenge is there, but there are things that are being taken in place by both private sector and the government on controlling the disease. But the exports is key o- o- on that journey. I'm, I'm skeptical of the BRICS science. I'm skeptical of, of its real connectivity of what it really means for the future. I see it as politically expedient, but it's a it's a it's a loose connection between guys that were sort of thrown together in a club by an investment banker 25 years ago. These are countries with potential for growth in the future, and it's become a thing. Saudi Arabia wants into this this uh, this club. There are a couple of other countries that want to get in as well. Is this part of them sort of? Uh, approaching us and saying, you see what happens when you when we collaborate. You see what happens when you treat us well. There's they're better both ways. It feels a little bit like this is the politics talking um, of this attempt to get in, included in BRICS. You, you know, Bruce, uh, how I would like to think about it is to say, let's go for individual countries that are increasingly being open to absorb South Africa's um, agricultural products and the other industries. Because the truth is, BRICS, uh, Bruce, as we sit within the BRICS countries right now, if you think about how much South Africa exports to the world, we export roughly around about $12.8 billion worth of agricultural products. The BRICS countries at the moment, they absorb only 8% of that. So we haven't really been uh, seeing gains from an agricultural perspective. The idea then is to say, how can we expand our exports and presence in China, in India and Saudi Arabia, either while they are in BRICS or outside BRICS. But I think the BRICS countries in general, when you look at the agricultural markets, the original members without the addition of the Saudi, it is still big. I mean, even though they take 8% of our products, they are a big market of around about $320 billion. Saudi themselves is a big market, $20 billion of agricultural imports there. But I would say uh, we, we approach them, of course, we are in BRICS now, we are here. But I think the relationship has to be within country by country because the reality is, as you rightly put it, this is a political grouping. There is no formalized uh, trading agreement that is between these countries. And I think these bilateral agreements is something that uh, bodes well for us. But I think the other aspect that is important in South Africa is that we should not de-emphasize the importance of the EU, the importance of the US and the African continent, because those are some of the markets that will remain strongly interlinked. Although we we push the BRICS messaging, I think we should really be looking at these things comprehensively, almost like what India is doing with the world, where they are interacting with everybody. Now, India, Kenya, more and more, just get more and more impressed with what the Kenyan government is doing in terms of playing the field for the benefit of its economy. Thank you, Wandile Sechobo, uh, who's the author of a fabulous book called A Country of Two Agricultures. He's an agricultural economist at the Agricultural Business Chamber. I think it's got something to do with agriculture. I guess. Uh, we have Pablo in just a moment as well uh, on this uh, this Thursday evening. Pablo is now talking about sales and how to ramp up your sales. Sales in a business, without them, uh, your business is at a dead end. So we'll pick up on that as well. In addition to beef, of course, it starts to open up the lines of trade and the, the relationships between countries far more than ever before. And the Saudis are very keen. They've seen the huge success of the United Arab Emirates and Dubai 
Dubai in particular, in terms of opening up to the world and seeing the opportunity of doing so. And so when the Saudis are doing it, and you've got their pharmaceuticals, for example, you've got technology too. Uh, we've got Aspen Pharmacare, for example. Uh, which is going to be working with Saudi companies on anesthetic products. Um, as I saw some quotes from Stavros Nikolaou, the executive for strategic trade, and uh, looking at the at the you know, in dealing with the, with the Saudis, they're also going to do endocrine products for Aspen Pharmacare. So the, the the possibilities truly are endless when you start actually opening up and normalizing relationships between countries. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. Our small business feature brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. Pablo Fatidis, I live in faith and hope that you are with us this evening. Talk to me about sales. Without sales, we are nowhere, Pablo, in our businesses. Whether we're selling a product, whether we're selling a service, if nobody wants to pay us money for the thing that we do, we're not hiding to nothing, aren't we? Well, sales' job is to make people aware that you even exist. And Bruce, I had the most fantastic conversation this week with a business based down in KZN. It is um, an artisanal bakery, an industrial bakery, with a main baker, the founder of the business. Uh, He was born to bake, born to bake. He said to me, you know, I left school completely directionless, like many of us do, I guess. Uh, Hated school, but loved cooking. So I became a cook. I then realized when I was a cook, that cooking is an art and baking is a science. And realized that I love science more than art. So I became a baker. And that took him right around the world, um, including a number of years in France, where he tutored under this extremely strict perfection complex driven fastidious master artisan baker that taught him the science of making sourdough bread and that's what they do today they've got a fantastic product and they're growing but he's grumpy and i said what's missing he said we need funding to scale sales and i said fine we can source the funding but what are you going to scale exactly? And it made me think that we put very often the horse before the cart in two ways. Number one, we think that a great product builds a great business. It's only 50% true because without a great product, you don't even start. Exactly. And number two, we think on the back of a great product, you need funding to build a great business. And it's only part right because what needs to precede the funding is a formula for commercial success that takes the great product to market. And key to that formula is a sales engine. The sales engine is the mechanism to drive your sales and how you get to market, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and, you know, when you have really motivated sales teams and sales teams, let's be blunt about it, are often motivated by the personal financial income that is their key motivator. They do love a good commission. Um, And if you can get them sufficiently motivated so that you're not giving away too much of your margin in the sales process, you may very well find yourself on a winner. Yeah, I think you might and you may. And, you know, it, salespeople just generally are really, really hard to find, Bruce. And, you know, we might think it's a South African situation, but I can promise you across across 
all the territories I certainly work in, it comes up as the number one big, big issue. How do I find good salespeople? They're harder to find. And I think there are a couple of reasons for it. You know, firstly, for many, many years, we were relying on, let's call it digital activity to generate sales. So if you think back to the early days of Facebook and the early days of Google, they had all these kind of very um, cute and sentimental and goody two shoes payoff lines, like don't be evil. And they did deals with us and they said, you know, create good content, it helps build the platform. And what we'll do is we'll create a community for you. And when you have a product that you believe is worth selling, you can let the community know and they'll come bashing down your door. And it certainly worked for a, a while. It, it all of a sudden became a lot easier to generate sales. And what happened over the 10-year period from when they began to when they got listed and IPO'd and changed their tune, saying that if you want access to your community, you now have to pay, which meant that all of a sudden the sales engine that we had relied on for almost a decade switched off. During that period, the sales muscle atrophied. And now we need it more than ever because it no longer works to only engage digitally. You need to get people on the ground. You need to put boots on the ground. They need to pound the pavement. You need to build a team so you can have engagements with your customers and you can target your customers and you can communicate the benefits of the product and you can create a good experience. And yet, very hard to find good salespeople because I think the art of selling, as well as the science of it, much like baking and cooking, has largely been lost. What is the science of selling? I mean, we, you, you, we, one sort of sees the salesperson as the person who's got good contacts, they've got a good little black book, they are able to be convincing about the quality of the products and the problem that it solves for people, and they're very good at spending time, they're very good at connecting with others. What is the, the secret of the sale? <laughs> You know, the real secret, I think, is to deliver the following outcome. People only ever buy something if they feel understood. Because if they feel understood, you know, if you and I have a, a conversation and I feel that you hear what I'm saying, it builds my faith and confidence that the conversation is a good conversation and we're moving in the right direction. And in many ways... When salespeople meet their prospects, they immediately start talking to the features and attributes of the product. And intellectually, I might grasp it, but does it make me feel understood? If rather, they first inquired as to, well, what problem would this product solve? How does that problem come about? If you don't solve it, what does it do for you or to you? What are the impacts? And if you allow someone to express that first, Bruce, then their minds, hearts, and hands are open to receive insight into a solution or insight into how the problem can be solved and insight into what it would mean for them. When people can see the outcome that would solve their problem and can see the path to reaching that outcome and how you have presented your product beyond just the features, but the experience that they would enjoy using the product to solve their problem, you've got the early stages of, let's call it, organized activities that can allow you to build a selling system. And if you have that selling system, 
It is the early stages of the engine which you can test in the market and refine it. In other words, improve those activities because once you have that, you've got the beginning of the magic that builds great salesmen. But you've also then got to, I mean, you, you, you hire around the system rather than build a system around the people that you have or the people who you think you should have. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, the, the big problem with onboarding a rock star is in many ways what the rock star does. Typically, they're going to be a rock star because let's call it, it might be personality attributes or it's going to be something along those lines. It might be that they have a, a fantastic black book. But when the black book runs out, what then? Question one. And then secondly, if it's personality driven, how do you replicate it? And if it's personality driven, should they, for whatever reason, through circumstances or situations change as it does in life, exit you and will leave the business? Then you left right at the beginning again, bearing in mind that you would have invested an enormous amount of capital into building supporting infrastructures for that particular rockstar salesperson. You know, it's no different in many ways to a sports team. If you if you have a rockstar player in the team itself, um, and I think back to one of, well, you know what? Let's have a look at the most recent Springbok uh, or Rugby World Cup. Honestly, truthfully, did we have any exceptional rock stars or did we have a team that integrated well and worked well together? Yeah. And in many ways, I think as a business owner, it's incumbent on you to rather build a team than rely on a rock star. And to build a team, you need to understand why you exist. You exist to meet the needs of that customer. So if you build a selling engine that delivers that promise each and every time reliably, and then you employ a team to run and drive and operate that engine, you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting your sales system, you're getting your sales engine, and you're able to capacitate it with a team that can drive those sales for you. As the business owner, you've got this team. They aren't going out and representing you. They're going out and making promises on behalf of you. Um, and you better make sure that you've got a system that allows you to deliver on those promises because there's nothing worse than a salesperson going out and making promises on your behalf, coming back to the office and saying, right, got this deal. I need 10,000 units by next Thursday. And you're going, hold on a second. Do you know how long it takes to make a unit? And you're just not ready for the growth that might come. Completely. And, you know, in that instant, that big deal, which could be a game changer for the business, is now compromised. And in that being compromised, effectively what you're compromising is your reputation and the brand of that company. So very often, it's well and good getting someone who can go out there and hunt and kill and bring in uh, the big buffalo. But if your business is well geared and perfectly well geared to bring in squirrels, then stick to squirrels. And if you build a sales system around it, you're able to identify the right people who can operate and have the aptitude for that sales system. You can measure their performance. You can test whether they can deliver that performance before you employ them, rather than rely on the CV and all sorts of promises. And getting that part right, where you target the sales system to deliver the promise that you want delivered to the clients that you are built to serve, is the very early stages and the beginning of creating a scalable platform, which means that you can have consistent, predictable, reliable client experiences. 
And Bruce, the fantastic thing about that is that it releases your time and attention from doing the sales to leading it. And with that, you can then focus your time and attention predominantly on growth rather than simply maintaining yeah. what you already have. No, but, if you don't crack it, yeah. you hit a ceiling and that's where you stay. And it's, it's that thing that you always talk about, and I want to bring it full circle to that point. You're never going to have an asset of value unless you've got a mechanism that delivers the prospects to your customers and make sure that your customers are happy, always happy, and that they are always well catered for. And that depends on the the team you build and the system that you implement. So there's a a, sort of a a beautiful triangulation there, isn't there? Completely. You know, the the big trick for every business owner, but by far most business owners start with strong skills or competence or capabilities in either the product that they build or the service that they build, which they then offer into the market. And they get enormously grumpy when they're taken away from their first (laughs) art, which is building that product and the love for the product and the love for the service. But if you take a step back and say, actually, the product I'm building is this mechanism to take my beautiful artisanal bread to market at volumes and at scale never before imagined or way beyond what I would be able to do if I'm square and center of everyday activities. If you can get that mindset right, it's a beginning to creating a scalable business and certainly the key to unlocking scalable sales. Pablo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator, scaling sales or sailing scales. No, scaling sales. That's what we're doing this evening. In a moment, our investment school on a Thursday night with Narina Fisser, the strategist and advisor at ETF South Africa. Dividends, the importance of dividends, the beautiful money babies we refer to from time to time. That's all coming up in the next half hour. But first, Juliet Newell with Eyewitness News at half past seven. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. This is The Money Show. It's our investment school. Narina Fisser, the strategist and advisor at ETFSA. What is a dividend? <laughs> good evening, Bruce, and good evening to the listeners and the students of the investment school. A dividend is a wonderful thing that a company, when you are a shareholder of that company, makes profits, hopefully, will then get to share some of those profits with you as the shareholder. And that is what is called a dividend. Okay. So, um, and how often do I get a dividend? I quite like this idea (laughs) of sharing in the profits of a company. How often does it come? Absolutely. Most often we find that companies pay out distributions or dividends at least once a year, but very often twice a year. There are the odd occasion that you would see it more frequently, but certainly in the South African market, it would either be once or then twice a year that you would receive dividends from your companies in which you are invested. And how much do I get as a dividend? (laughs) That is exactly the million dollar question, Bruce, because how much you get depends on two things primarily. The one would be um, how profitable is the company? So, um, and and profitable, especially from a cash flow perspective, because they, they need to actually generate cash 
so that they've got cash that they can pay out to you as the investor. So profitability and cash flow generation is very important. But the other aspect is then also how much does the company actually choose to pay out to investors and how much of that cash do they hold inside the company in order to reinvest, redeploy it inside the company in order to hopefully improve growth and future profitability in the company. So it really does depend on, you know, from company to company, from from industry or sector to one another, but it is something that can vary quite substantially over time. And then there are some, you know, they call the cash cows, some of these companies that have just been going for so long and they are just churning out the profits and the cash flows year after year and they very happily share it with their investors. And I think those are really some of the key dividend paying companies that investors are very keen on, not just the frequency of those dividends, but the but the certainty also that you have with knowing that you're going to be receiving that regular dividend income. Uh, because this is important. On the one hand, you know, I mean, much of the focus of investing on, on stock markets is the capital gain that you make. If I buy it for 100 yes. today, I want to be able to sell it for 1,000 10 years from now. <laughs> and ideally, that that is what happens. But also during that time, I want to be getting, I don't know uh, what's reasonable, three rand a year, uh, from mm-hmm. from each every hundred, that's a, what's called a dividend yield, three percent of the hundred rand that I invested, and I want to be getting three rand a year, growing to three rand twenty next year, and by the time it gets to ten years, I'm getting five rand a year from every share mm. that I own. I want capital growth, and I want dividends, and I want those dividends to grow every year. That's in the ideal scenario, isn't it? You're spot on, Bruce. That's exactly what it is, because the total return that you get from your investment is this combination of the capital gain or the capital growth, and then the amount of income, the dividends that you receive from that investment. So one of the reasons why dividend strategies are so popular with investors is exactly for that regular income that you get from this. And especially if you are an investor that are already in a stage of your life where you are requiring or quite keen on receiving that cash, you know, the dividend flow that comes to you every quarter or every six months, um, then certainly that is a very important component of the total return that you get. But the other aspect, which is sometimes also a little bit overlooked in terms of this, is when you look at the proportion of your total return that comes from capital gains versus the proportion that comes from the dividends that are paid out, that talks something to almost the the variability of that return that you can get. You know, you use uh, in a perfect world example of buying it for a hundred rand and selling it for, I don't know, a million rand further down the line. (laughs) Um, In that type of scenario, a massive part of your total return is obviously going to come from the capital gain. But if you get a quite a a sizable component of the total return coming from dividends, and it's quite steady, it's quite certain, that acts almost as a bit of a stabilizer for you in the total returns. Because, you know, yes, it's great making 10, 100, 1,000% capital gains on your on your investment. But of course, that often comes with a lot of volatility and a capital gain could also be a capital loss. So it's quite useful having investments in companies where the dividend payout that you're getting is really this stabilizer in an otherwise quite volatile environment. Because it doesn't 
doesn't all, I mean, there, there's a contradiction here that companies mm. that produce great dividends are not always companies that are going to grow because they've, they, they can't, exactly. they're dominant in their market. They are not yeah. overly ambitious about growth. They're happy to do organic growth and they're very happy to share their profits. So high dividend payers are not always going to be high capital growth companies and high capital growth companies are not always going to pay massive dividends. So how do we find the happy medium here to get the benefit of both and actually maximize over a period of time the total return rather than just a share yeah. price return or a or a dividend distribution return mm-hmm. so, so happy medium sounds great bruce but i think ultimately it comes down to your investment objective if your objective is mostly about getting the the high and steady dividend income then you're quite prepared to forego some of that capital growth in favor of the high dividends that you're getting However, if you are still mostly focused on growing your capital and hopefully well in excess of inflation, and you're not really in a position where you need that dividend income just yet, especially if you're investing in a company who can actually redeploy that cash, that dividend, if they can reinvest it back in the company and produce much better growth that you as the investor can produce, then you'd be quite happy to have something that focuses on the capital growth. So that's the starting point. You as the investor, what is it that you're actually needing from this investment. And once you've then decided that what you are really after is that high dividend income, this is something that is quite important for you. Identifying those companies can be quite hard. And I say that because what is quite readily available to us is historic dividend yields. You can you know, look through the newspapers. I don't know if there are people that still look at newspapers, but you can look through the share listings. You can look on your online share trading account. You can use any form of investment tools and do a ranking or a screening for companies that have got a certainly high historic dividend yield. And you think, oh, cool, great. I have identified the companies that I should be investing in. But the problem with looking at historical dividend yield is that it tells you something about what's happened in the past. When I buy that share today, I'm not going to get that historic dividend yield. That is something that was achieved by the person who held that share before me. So I need to identify ways in which I can say, what dividend can I expect to be earning from this company in future? And that, of course, is a lot harder because, as we know, you know, forecasting is um, is quite difficult, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Forecasting, particularly about the future, is very difficult. I've got two great examples for you, which I want to test in just a moment because historic dividend yields were solid. It was absolutely brilliant. One of the companies went bust. The other one um, has resumed its dividend flows over time. Mm. Um, I'm going to talk to you about those ones in just a moment. Narina Fisser explaining dividends to us this evening in a wonderful and easily understood way the strategist and advisor at ETFSA with us on The Money Show The Money Show Investment School so two companies, African Bank Investments Limited under curatorship are now re-emerging from that curatorship, of course, and it will soon be listed on the JSE again. At one stage, I think, at a dividend yield of 10%. It was magical. Anglo-American was the world's most reliable dividend player until they over-invested in iron ore assets that cost them too much money, and they 
uh, I remember there was a man called Don Tooth who ran Fargelechen, who said he once made a joke with the chief executive that you know, it was the only profitable part of the business. Imagine a mining company that owns a wine farm and that's the only part of the business that makes money. Um, and, 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 and they suspended dividends and for many people dependent on dividends for their income in retirement in particular, this was a dreadful shock. Uh, and here's the point about dividends, Narina. They're never mm. guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bruce, and I think you you chose two very good and interesting companies for us to maybe explore this topic of dividends a little bit more. Let's start with African Bank. And you spoke about that juicy dividend yield of 10%. Now, when we think about how a dividend yield is calculated, it is dividends divided by share price. So a high dividend yield can come from one of two sources. It can either because be because they actually paid out high dividends, or it can be because the share price is exceptionally low. Now, if the share price is low because it represents a good time to invest in and it's a good value proposition and there's lots of good prospects, then that's a great high dividend yield to have. But if the share price is exceptionally low for good reasons, as we had with Abel and African Bank towards the end of, of its it's it's former life, if I can put it that way, then it's a terrible time to invest in it. So you need to understand what is causing the dividend yield to be as high as it is. The second part of that, of course, is then the the prospects of those dividends to be paid in future as well, which fast forwards us then to Anglo-American, the other example that you used. And this is something that we see more often in mining companies than in many others. Because the income profile, the earnings profile of mining companies can be quite cyclical, you often go through periods where they can have exceptional dividends. And we often see this with the likes of your single commodity producers, so things like your platinum companies or your gold companies. And even coal companies, you know, think of, of some of our coal companies during the, the height of the coal exports to Europe yeah. in the aftermath of the, of the Russia invasion. So there are these periods where you get exceptionally high profits only to be followed then by periods of very low or no dividends being paid out. So those are the cyclicality of the earnings and the dividends is an important one. But it's interesting also when you then look at, you speak about Anglo-American being one of the most reliable dividend payers. Probably the most reliable dividend payers in our markets have been banks because banks just churn out this cash flow year after year and they pay out lovely, nice dividends to their investors and whop, then came COVID. And suddenly the banks had to protect their balance sheets and the banks had to, we didn't know what the future was going to look like. And suddenly the banks stopped paying dividends. And so what used to be very reliable dividend payers for the longest time suddenly also caused a lot of anxiety for investors. And unfortunately, this also came during a time when interest rates plunged. So you often find that people who are dependent on dividend income are also ones that rely a lot on on interest income, and so really a double whammy for yeah. investors who sort of invested mostly on the premise of past historic patterns in dividend and interest payments and not with enough 
cognizance of what does the future look like for these particular companies. Now, very few of us have your level of experience and skills in investment markets, Narina, and you are connected to the ETF world. And I haven't looked at it for an awfully long time, but I wonder how Satrix Dividend Plus is working. Uh, if it even still exists, it was one of the early ETFs that was created um, in the early days of ETFs. It, it, that sort of that sort of investment product appeals to my low maintenance investment approach because I don't have 12 hours a day to sit and in my balance sheets and to look on websites and to read annual reports and to do the whole Warren Buffett thing. Plus, I've got a slight um, sort of uh, cerebral disadvantage to Warren Buffett. Um, I, I, I quite like it that I, there is a mechanism for me to be able to tap into the wisdom of the market without too much effort. Yeah, absolutely. You spot on. I think for for the for the investor who does not have either the 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 capacity or the appetite or the time to do this, an ETF that represents a particular dividend investment strategy is a great way to do it. So you mentioned Satrix Dividend Plus. So let's start with that one because there are two very distinct options available for investors looking for dividend strategies. The dividend Satrix Dividend Plus strategy is what we would refer to as a dividend pay strategy. In other words, it invests in companies that pay high dividends. So now you're going to think, oh, well, that's exactly, surely that must be the only type of dividend strategy that one should be interested in. But what happened there in particular is I briefly mentioned the coal companies just recently. What we saw was that for a period of time, those coal companies like Tungela and Exaro and Kumba and so on were by far the biggest holdings inside the Satrix Divi Plus ETF because they were paying exceptional yeah. dividends. And so during that time, you had the perfect storm of getting both high dividends and great capital growth. But then, of course, if your forecast, your expectations of future dividend payments don't materialize, you actually get exactly the opposite. And unfortunately, in the case of the Satrix Divi Plus, that was its experience during 2023. That doesn't mean that the strategy is broken, but it talks to this volatility maybe of of dividend payment okay. profiles when you're only focusing on payment. Is, is the there, other strategy... Is, is, is mm. there an idiot-proof way then? Sorry, Narina, we need to wrap up. Is there an no. idiot-proof way to simply access great dividend payers? So I prefer the dividend grower strategy, which is one that says I'm interested in companies that consistently grow their dividends over time. And this you find in the dividend aristocrats methodology, and it works particularly well in the in the 10x global dividend ETF where they follow that strategy. There is also a version for South Africa, but unfortunately, it doesn't work as well in the South African environment. So for it's for, for me, constant growing dividends talk about quality. And that for me is a much more resilient um, strategy around dividend payments than only focusing on companies that pay high dividends. That is a very sensible solution. Sorry, that is the uh, the 10x? The 10x Global Dividend ETF. Just to give you an idea, companies need to have paid constantly growing dividends or growing dividends for at least 25 years before they can even be included in that ETF. So you know you are buying long-term quality over short-term flash in the pan. 
Narina Fissa, who is a strategist and advisor at ETFSA, with some wonderful guidance for us this evening. Narina, as always, thank you very much indeed. A wonderful communicator on complex subjects around personal finance and the way in which you manage your money. A worthy head teacher this evening of our investment school. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. A wonderful Thursday night. Good night.